and we are live. So here's the countdown. Here we are. Here we are. Jacob's Film Perspective's back. Uh, Deontay's not here with us tonight, but that's okay. He'll be here in the comments probably in spirit. And I got a new segment. Uh, Nick is coming back, but our special guest here is Lawson. He's a stranger. I don't know him. No, I'm just kidding. He's a good, great friend of mine, one of my best friends. And uh, we made a movie together. Yes, we made a movie together. Well, he made the movie. I just, I was his little helper boy, but, and I was the Phantom, but it's his movie, Phantom of the Fields. Go check that out. Let's shout that out immediately. Plug it all. Phantom of the Fields. And uh, as you guys may know, this episode doesn't have a topic yet, but we're about to see. We're about to see. What is it? It's the William Friedkin tribute. Who would have guessed? Who would have guessed? You know, this is usually we talk about new releases. This is the first episode of the podcast where I'm talking about an older movie, like older movies. So, I mean, that's special in that outright. And then we have a new special guest here with Lawson, an actual a filmmaker that's won awards. And uh, I mean, just, I mean, start off, William Freaking, you know, he sadly passed, what, three weeks ago? August 7th. He knows the exact date. Okay, yeah. August 7th. And then his birthday was just Tuesday, right? Yeah, and his new film uh, that he directed is coming out in Venice Film Festival tomorrow. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a very, it's, so it's actually a very timely podcast for this. And uh, thanks to Lawson, actually, he's the one that reminded me it was his birthday because I wasn't going to do this initially because I passed the time. I know it's been a while, but I'm back. It's been about a month and a month and a week or something. It's been a while, but I'm back. And uh, yeah, we're just going to praise William Friedkin and talk about William Friedkin because the man was, was a legend. He was pioneer, great. Pioneer in filmmaking. I mean, we'll, we'll have a lot to say, but before that, let's hit you with a JFP visual intro. It's, Feast And we're back. That a beautiful, amazing intro. Thank you. Uh, Will from the network here did that. Props to Will for that. And uh, the King. But uh, yeah, so I mean, since you're the special guest, I mean, where do you want to take this? First, let's get with this. First, give us this. Give us the story of your contact with William Friedkin, because actually 
that's actually a surprising thing. Lawson here has actually talked to the legendary director himself. So, I mean, that's, that's pretty awesome. So uh, let's hear that. Yeah, I, I called him up in uh, 2020. First time I called him, he was out of the country. So I had to call back. I had to call back a few times. And uh, last time I called back, his maid answered. And she said, oh, he's in the bathroom right now. <laughs> she said, you want to leave a message? I said, no, I'll, I'll call back. 30 minutes later, I called back and uh, answered the phone. I hear hello. I said, is this Billy Friedkin? He said, yes, this is. And I just, I said, well, I'm just such a fan of your work. You know, it's just influenced me so much. Uh, is there any advice you can give me? He said, he said, no, no, there, there's no advice. He said, everybody has their own way of doing things. He said, the hell with advice. Everybody has their own way of doing things. Just find your own way of making movies and make them. And he said, I wish you all the luck in the world with that. He said, I wish I could be more help. He said, but, you know, my career was luck. He said, luck and um, ambition. And uh, we talked about a few of his films, and he was very nice, very encouraging, and everything you'd expect him to be. And, uh, yeah, he was one of the only, he was one of two legendary directors I've ever had any contact with. But I, I told him, I said, I'll, I'll always remember this. And he said, well, it was my pleasure, Lawson. Thank you. It's very, it's a short conversation, but it meant a lot. So, I mean, he seems like a, he was a kind guy. I mean, from the interviews you watch, sometimes he may have been a little. It was the funniest. Tiny. It was the funniest and most entertaining director interview out there, I think. Yeah. If you guys want a good one, go watch the one he did with Nicholas Winding Refn about sorcerer on uh youtube that's a great interview that lawson actually showed me and uh that one is that one's nice that one's great um but i mean one oliver stone it's a printed interview i think so look that up look that up with oliver stone go see that one too and i mean as of Oh, uh, Deonta here asked, uh, how'd that interview come together? Did you just, I, uh, I made several contacts in the film business and I'm friends with a guy who's friends with a guy who's friends with Billy. So I got his number through all that. It's, this business is a lot of connections. That's how I got to talk to Peter Bogdanovich also. Yeah. I mean, he's got to talk with a few directors. He's met some famous people, but today it's Friedkin time. And in tribute of him, it's a sad loss. I mean, he lived a long, good life. I mean, I forgot how old he was. He'd have been 80, 88, so he was 87. But he was I saw 80. it. I saw an interview of him uh, a few months back and at the Turner Classic Movie Festival. And he didn't look well. I knew he wasn't probably going to be around much longer. So, I mean, he lived a long life at 87. I mean, and I, uh, I as being, I mean, because me and Lawson, we're both filmmakers, obviously. And uh, as someone who comes from SEMO as a film major, I mean, we studied a little bit of William Friedkin in class. I mean, 
So, I mean, he's had a huge impact on filmmakers where he's being taught in class. I mean, that's something with this film. I think it was his film, The French Connection, we learned about. But uh, I can't remember. It's been so long. But uh, he was a pioneer for a lot of things. I mean, he created arguably what I would say is the best chase scene ever in The French Connection. One of the best horror films ever and and the exorcist which i mean you the conjuring insidious all that i mean they have to give some thanks to the exorcist because it was like the first one that blew the doors open for those type of movies you didn't really see i mean you saw a few but in america like wide stream popular it was the exorcist that broke the doors I think it was the one of the first, maybe the first horror film that ever got any Oscar recognition. Yeah. And I mean, he went on and I mean, after that, you know, a lot of people kind of fall off from him after that. It goes from, uh, he goes to Sorcerer and I mean, that was a box office failure, but I think it's a still, I think it's a masterpiece of, uh, underrated masterpiece. Nobody has seen by him usually, but it's a great definitely, film. Yeah, definitely go see Sorcerer. If you haven't, go check that one out. If you're if you loved the French connection, if you loved um the Exorcist, I think you'll really like the Sorcerer. It's very unconventional. It's and it's basically his epic. It's what I I see it as his epic because it, it is dumb. Yeah, it was huge in scale. It was the, the, I mean, this was back in 77, so, I mean, the practical effects he used, I mean, this there was no CGI. There was nothing. He had to do all this in camera. So, I mean, that feat of itself alone, and as Beyonce, head of the network here, says well-deserved Oscar. I think he got the Oscar for French Connection, I think, wasn't it? Best director, I think. Yeah, best director for French Connection. And uh, he, and you know, he kind of went on and he made uh, other films, Live and Die in L.A. in the 80s, and then Cruising before that with Al Pacino, which a lot of people haven't seen either. But really, he kind of, I don't want to say faded off to obscurity, but if you weren't a film fan, you really didn't hear of his name much anymore. And I mean... That's sad, but it's also, I mean, I feel like that's where he fit because he didn't want to be, he didn't want to be the George Lucas. He didn't want to be a Steven Spielberg. He wanted to make his own films on his own merits with, he didn't want to, uh, he wanted to make his films when he wanted to make them. He didn't want to, he wasn't trying to be an audience pleaser. I mean, he wanted to, of course, you know, entertain the audience, but he wasn't so much about that. He's more about his craft, about his work. And that's why, I mean, if you're a filmmaker, I think every filmmaker will tell you William Friedkin is an inspiration to you. In some way or other, The Exorcist, The French Connection, Sorcerer, even To Live and Die in L.A., even later on, like The Hunted, Killer Joe, stuff like that. I mean... At some point, uh, 
uh, I think every filmmaker will, has been or will be influenced by William Friedkin, and that's why I'm doing a whole podcast episode dedicated to him because I think I, I I do think he's that important in the film industry, and uh, his importance is very underlooked. He's he's very underlooked, and like Picor for Beyonce, I agree, uh, easily top five horror films for me. It's not my favorite. John Carpenter has that with Halloween, but Exorcist is definitely top five for me. I mean, so like, what are what's your favorite freaking film, Lawson? I I guess I would say The Exorcist. Uh, French Connections also definitely close. Uh, I love the car scene, the car chase which he did for real. They didn't get any permits. They just drove into oncoming traffic at 90 miles an hour. But yeah, I think The Exorcist. So, uh, I mean, it, it's The Exorcist for me and French Connection is right behind it for sure. And then I would say Sorcerer is right there with it too. Sorcerer is, uh, I watched that recently. That movie is just an epic masterpiece. I mean, just top to bottom perfect. And then it's, uh, I mean, you could do a whole episode on just Sorcerer and just the problems he had getting that made and uh, all that. But he never, I mean, that's another good lesson to learn from him. He never gave up. I mean, yeah. He, and uh, Sorcerer came out the same week as Star Wars. So that he, has, he had an uphill battle trying to get people in the theater to see that one. Yeah. I mean, imagine your movie going against one of the most famous movies of all time now. I mean, what so I it wasn't necessarily his fault for sorcerer bombing, obviously, but it's still it's still a great film that everybody needs to watch at least once. He always said that was the closest film to in his mind that he ever made. And I mean, I can I I mean I agree. I mean it's a five out of five A plus for me. I mean it's I watched it. I was shocked. It was. Perfect. And even like, I know you watched this, you told me you watched this the other day, The Hunted is mm -hmm. an underrated little hidden gem that's actually pretty, it's actually pretty, it has a pretty good, like big production value. Like there at the beginning, the opening of The Hunted, I mean, with the whole war scene going on. Well, that, that film had a budget of like 55 or $60 million, I think. Yeah, like it. You know, and not a lot of people talk about it, but it's a good, if you like, it's basically, it's very similar. I will say it's very similar to The Fugitive. It definitely gives off those vibes, but like. And, and Rambo, First Blood. Had some yeah, of that Rambo, First Blood. It's kind of a mix between those two. But I think it has enough of its own merits that you should check that one out too. I think it's worth it. It's not a masterpiece, but I think okay. it's. I think it's worth it. I mean, it has Tommy Lee Jones, Benicio Del Toro. I mean. There you go, right there. Just, I, I mean, and that's where the fugitive connection kind of comes to. It has Tommy Lee Jones kind of playing the same type of role, but uh, he did great in it. And like everything with Friedkin's uh, direction, you know, like we were talking about this, everything is so visceral. It's just real. It's just the fighting. The, I mean, when there's people getting stabbed, the way the blood comes, it's just so visceral the way he shoots his films and i think 
that's a mark that is missing in a lot of films today. And I think it's a mark that only he could really, I don't think, I don't think his style could be replicated by anybody. I think he has his own unique style. And like, you can kind of tell when you're watching a Friedkin film. Even his bad movies have, they're interesting. Yeah. He always said that, uh, his worldview was that there were no good or bad people. Everybody had, he liked to say Jesus and Hitler in them. And if you watch his movies, uh, that you can see that to live and die in LA, you know, there, these cops commit a robbery so they can get money to pay a counterfeiter to print them some bills so they can bust him. If you've seen that film and, uh, no, there's no good or bad people. It's just a, it's a mixture, a gray area. That, that was throughout all his work. Yeah. I mean, sorcerer, everybody in that i mean the stars and sorcerer everybody in that movie is not a great person but it's about them doing something that's going to help this community so it's always it's always got that undertone it's the exorcist the feet that lost a uh, priest that lost his faith and uh basically regains it by helping a you know a possessed girl and then uh the french connection a, cop he has to do some things that are questionable for cops but i mean he gets it done and uh arguably the french connection might be the one that i actually I actually know the extra because the exorcist see that's the thing with william Friedkin is all exorcist french connection and i think even sorcerer have inspired so many other films i mean you want to talk about his influence it's not just his films if if it hadn't been for billy friedkin gene hackman might not have had the career he had he brought out um bill butler the cinematographer who shot uh jaws and grease out to la he brought toby hooper from texas after he made texas chainsaw massacre so we might not have got poltergeist uh, Spielberg cast Roy Scheider in uh, Jaws because he saw saw him in Billy's movie. So, see, he made he he made waves in literally all kinds of ways in the film industry. He's like I like we've been saying already, one of the most I think important filmmakers, definitely of his time, and even still. I mean, he yeah. wasn't as popular, and he wasn't as successful. Uh, when it comes to box office and stuff like that, as his other uh, peers in the seventies. But I mean, I think people, and I mean, when you talk to a regular person, you're like William Friedkin, they may know him from the exorcist, maybe like, Oh, the guy that directed the exorcist, but the, usually he's a very, he's not really a household name still. And uh, that's why, again, we need to do this podcast to like shine some light on him and give him more praise. Cause I mean, the man has done so much and, uh, yeah. So that's why we're here. So, I mean, where do you want to take this? Where do you, do you want to dissect? I mean, cause at the end of the day, the show is just guys talking movies. So, I mean, and I usually let the guest go with it. So, I mean, what do you, where do you want to uh start? We're talking about how uh, 
realistic his films were. I think that comes two things. One is he liked to print first take, which is me one to three takes also. You get a, a spontaneity in there, and it gives it an energy where it doesn't feel rehearsed and you do it. I think that's one reason. The other reason was if he made a film about cops, he hung out with cops, had them on the set. If he made a film about counterfeiters, he had actual counterfeiters on the set. When he made Killer Joe, it was based off a cop that he knew that was a hired killer on the side. <laughs> you know, if he made a mafia movie, he hung out with the mafia. He just, he totally immersed himself to make it real. Yes, and I mean, uh, he did, I mean, he just, he was dedicated to the craft. I mean, that's really the strongest thing we can say about him is, I mean, he, he loved making films and he was, a, I mean, he, He started he out TV. Yeah, I mean, because here's the thing with you probably you have more knowledge on Friedkin than I do for sure. So I mean just say what you I mean, like I said, you're kind of the you're kind of the guide of this episode. We're talking about Friedkin, but you're you're my Friedkin expert. So I mean let's go. We're in bad hands then. All the hopes in me were lost. Uh, did, did you ever hear the story about how he got the exorcist? I actually did not. And actually, I bet so, a lot of people haven't. So I actually tell us that. So, so he was a fledgling director. He'd done a few movies that did no business in the 60s. And uh, he got called in to do a script of, I think it was called Peter Gunn. Uh, famous director, producer, uh, Blake Edwards, I think was his name, married to Julie Andrews. And he got the script. He was so excited. He went home and he thought it was terrible. And uh, so he, he comes back and in typical Billy Friedkin fashion, when this big, big producer asked this nobody yet director, what he thought of the script he said i think it's the biggest piece of shit i've ever read in my life he said your worst enemy wouldn't have written this script for you and uh blake's blake and him had a big argument and uh he threw him out of the office and there was a bunch of people standing in the room so he's walking to his car and he hears somebody say mr friedkin he turns around and this guy comes up to him and he said i'm my name is william peter blatty and he said, uh, I just want to thank you for your honesty. He said, I wrote that script. And he said, well, oh, I'm sorry. He said, no, it's, he said, it's, he said, it said uh, Blake Edwards on it. He said, yeah, he does that. He said, we all knew that script didn't work and nobody wanted to be honest with him because he was, you know, had so much power and influence. So I just want to thank you for that. And he said, okay. He left. Two years later, he's doing press for the French Connection. And he gets a package. He opens it up and it says The Exorcist, William Peter Blatty on it. And he read it. I think he started reading it and he couldn't stop. And there was a number, phone number in there. And he called William Peter Blatty. And uh, he said, what is this? He said, would you like it? He said, it's great. 
He said, you want to direct it? He goes, well, why me? He said, because you're the only director that never lied to me. And he carried that with him two or three years and gave him his biggest hit of his career. So, I mean, that right there, I mean, that's the thing about Friedkin. He never, never shied away from what saying his mind. He always said what was on his mind. And it led to some hilarious interview clips. And uh, just the exorcist alone is just, I mean, we've, we've said it. I mean, I think he's made three masterpieces in his career. And I mean, I haven't seen his newer work. I think his newest movie I've seen by him is The Hunted. So I'm kind of behind. I, uh, yeah. I saw Killer didn't like Killer Joe that much, but I have to revisit it. I liked Bug. I thought Bug was really good. It had a really dark sense of humor. And, and uh, speaking of that, dark sense of humor, since we're bringing that up, my old buddy Nick <laughs> wanted to be talked about on this show. He texted me here. I'm bringing it up, guys. He texted me, and he said... Because I told him I was going to kidnap him, get on, get him on the show, and uh, he's at work right now. Uh, but anyway, he he asked me to tell his hot takes on the show. So here are Nick's hot takes. Now, if you guys remember, Nick, I think was in the first two episodes of Jacob's Film Perspectives. Uh, he's kind of taking a hiatus. I don't know. He's a weird guy. He's probably. You know, he's probably under a bridge somewhere. Who knows? He's probably not even working. Don't lie to us, Nick. But anyway, here are his uh, hot takes. He said, to start off, Exorcist is mid, in all caps, mid. Okay, that's Nick's hot take. I would, you, if you watched the show before and you've seen Nick, you would expect Nick to say a hot take like that, which is funny because Nick is also really big into, like, I mean, he's a he's into Christianity and religion. So The Exorcist is mid is kind of odd to me because I mean that whole film is about a guy regaining his faith, if you follow the things. But uh, he goes on to say, "Bug, Killer Joe, French Connection, and to live and die in to live and die in L.A. are his best films." He said, "I have spoken, thus my opinion is correct." And then I said, "I, I said you're insane," and he said. I, it, it, I, he said, you know, I'm correct. And uh, let's just say, I don't think he's, I, he's right about the French connection. The other ones, I don't know if he's seen Sorcerer. He probably hasn't, little weirdo. But uh, Nick, watch Sorcerer and then come back. But yeah, uh, that was Nick's hot takes that he wanted me. That's a little, I, I'm going to call that segment Nick's hot, hot takes. I mean, he always has these weird hot takes, man. He's always coming out of the woodwork with some hot takes. And uh, I think that I may be – you go. I would, agree. I would agree The Exorcist does have some filler in it. They could be cut out, but it's still a great film. And I want I want whatever he's smoking so I can hallucinate too. Yeah, I mean, he, he always has these hot takes. Um, he wanted to be a part. He wanted to be here in spirit. So, Nick, there you are in spirit. Lawson kind of agreed with you there. And uh, maybe you can hit him up after and tell him what you've been, what you've been on. Because 
seems like some good stuff, Nick. But anyway, kind of rock star says so much filler in the yeah, thought, You know, not not a lot, but there's some scenes you could have cut out, especially if you watch the uh, director's cut, which isn't nearly as good as the theatrical cut. Yeah, I think actually that's a thank you, Austin. That's a great segue. I think we should talk about that for a second because that is an anomaly that I came across and that I was shocked by. And uh, because, you know, oh yeah, what's up, Chris? I should have recognized the name, uh, Chris, friend of mine here in the chat. But uh, keep adding your opinions, Chris. But, uh, yeah, uh, I, w I originally watched the first The Exorcist. The first time I watched it was the theatrical, and uh, I loved it. It blew me away. I mean, I gave it a plus. It gave me. It was one of the. It was one of the first horror films in a long time to creep me out, and actually like scare me. Like I was shot. I was like, oh, like it was hilarious, but it also terrified me at the same time. It had. And that's the thing about Friedkin. He has such a dark sense of humor. And, like, if you look at The Exorcist, yeah, it's it's a really messed up movie. And, you know, the little girl does some terrible things. But if you have a dark sense of humor, it's also will make you laugh out loud. But uh, other than that, uh, it terrified me. And I just absolutely loved it. And then I came back a few years later, and I was introducing somebody to The Exorcist. And I had... I. For some reason, uh, I bought it on my Voodoo, and I had the they only had the director's cut available, so that's what we watched was the director's cut, and this, that was the first time I had watched it. And I showed it to her, and uh, I watched it as well, and uh, she came away with saying that it was super overrated because she heard me talking about it, and my friends talking about it, and she came away saying it was super overrated, and she didn't see it how it's this classic great horror film. And to a degree, I can see why, because the director's cut is a big step down. I think it takes, a, I think it is too much filler in the director's cut. The ending, it really bogged the ending. You know, yeah, the, the, the theatrical cut, uh, he, it ends with him looking down those stairs and it's a perfect ending. The director's cut, I think they do a scene of like the priest and uh, the detective together doing like a Casablanca walk away saying this is going to be great friendship and it doesn't work. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of like Chris says here, it is one of those director's cuts that is like, honestly, there isn't too much different in the director's cut, but what is different and makes it so like it, it uh waters it down and it kind of it it just makes it longer and it's just that's the one thing where it's like man the director's cut you know you think William Friedkin a great director you think you'd want to watch the director's cut but the theatrical cut is by far better and I mean if anybody has a disagreement they can comment below but I think the theatrical cut is a the masterpiece of it I think the I will I think the director's cut does take it down a little bit actually the director's cut is uh william peter vladdy's cut really because he was mad at freakin for taking all those scenes out back in the 70s and freakin agreed to put them back in for another release in the early 2000s so i i think really the original is the director's cut and then the one in the 2000s was vladdy's cut see i didn't know that so that's interesting and i mean 
film with Exorcist 3. I mean, you can, you can, I mean, that makes more sense to me now because I feel like the theatrical cut, it's more, it's, there's barely, I don't think there's any filler in the theatrical cut, in my opinion. Uh, it's, it's very, uh, I thought it was pretty fast paced and that's, Another thing I like about Friedkin, he doesn't have he doesn't have excess on his film. He always cuts the fat off. Usually, he's very good at make in that being in the uh, he he's obviously probably in the editing room, uh, and he makes sure that there's just no fat usually on his films. Like I don't I can't think of anything to cut out of Sorcerer or French Connection. So I mean, or even The Haunted. Really, they're all like brisk. They all they all have like a brisk, nice pace to them, and I think, yeah, I think the director's cut kind of waters that part down, and uh, especially the scene. And it, it's funny because the director's cut has the most classic scene that a lot of people remember from the movie, of her going down the stairs, the spider walk. You know, that's in the director's cut. It's not in the theatrical. Because when I watched it, because actually when I watched the theatrical, I was like, where's that scene? Because at the end of the movie, I was like, I didn't see that scene. And then turns out it's in the director's cut. And uh, I'm glad it wasn't in the theatrical because watching it in the director's, it for, for the, the effects aren't too great on that one, I'd say. Well, they didn't use it. They couldn't uh, CGI the wires out back in the 70s. Yeah, I mean, they, they had limited... A lot more limited technology than they do now, so I can see that. And another thing, there is one scene though from the director's cut that I will say that should stay in, and that's them on the stairs. Lawson knows this. I've told him about this. Them, the conversation he has on the stairs with the priest, I think, is. At, great and it should have it should have been in the theater take put that in the theatrical and it goes from masterpiece to like oh beautiful masterpiece like it's still a masterpiece without it but that just it made it would have made it just even better like but other than that i if you're here and you've never seen the exorcist you're crazy get on that why are you watching my show you weirdo get the get out of here but anyway uh no but seriously watch the theatrical if you're gonna watch the exorcist for the first time check out the director's cut after just see maybe maybe you like it i mean some people prefer it over i've seen online but definitely go with theatrical first would you agree lawson i would say don't waste your time on the director's cut but yeah watch the exorcist you hadn't seen it. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, where do you want to take it from here? Uh, what all, what all of Billy's films have you seen? Deontay theatrical for the win. Uh, I've seen the hunted sorcerer exorcist French connection. That's what okay. I've seen. To live and die in LA is pretty good. I watched that after he. It had some. It has a good French connection, but it, it gets close. See, to live and die in LA. I tr when he died, that was the one I first went to watch because I saw uh, what's his? Forgot the actor's name, but he's in uh, Michael Mann's Manhunter. 
I don't know. And I forgot. Uh, they also said that uh, that film kind of had a Michael Mann vibe to it, which I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, but uh, yeah. Uh, I went to look it up, and it's not available anywhere on streaming. You have to, I mean, you'd have to do illegal stuff, but you know, to to watch it, or if you own it on physical, of course, physical copies always the way to go anyway. And actually, Kino Lorber actually released a new 4K Blu-ray of it, so. I need to buy that. I need to be on that. I have it on Blu-ray. I just haven't watched it yet because I'm lazy. And like everybody in today's world, I rather stream it than go and grab a actual physical copy. Sadly, even though I have a ton of Blu-rays as I hit my desk, but yeah, I just punch my desk. I'm that angry at it now, but yeah. I don't. So that's what I've seen. What have you seen? Seen uh, French Connection. Exorcist, Sorcerer, Cruising, To Live and Die in L.A., Hunted, uh, The Guardian, which wasn't good, Killer Joe, Bug, I think that's it. So basically most of them. He did about 20. I've seen about 9 or 10 of them. That's crazy he did 20 because you don't hear about them. That's, even that's the ones, it. even the ones you watched, you don't hear about like some of them, like Bug and Killer Joe. I remember actually when Bug came out, I remember seeing the trailer on TV. But uh, Killer Joe, you know, I mean, people talk about the one famous chicken scene, but like other than that, I mean, that's not really talked about. And it's got McConaughey, and it's like cruising has Al Pacino, so it's like. Live and die late to live and die in LA has William Defoe, so it's like, why aren't these films? Be, it's just it's it's kind of weird that his films aren't talked about like they should be. Uh, it's kind of a weird thing. Yeah, that's uh, it was kind of a trend with a few of the filmmakers in the seventies. So, like I said, Peter Bogdanovich, who I knew a little bit, he had uh, Last Picture Show, What's Up Doc, and then Paper Moon, and then he never had a really a big hit again and francis coppola had you know godfather one and two and apocalypse now in the 70s and he never really had a big hit again so that's the way it goes with some guys yeah even Dra i mean even dracula didn't do too well and uh i i think out of those people he's probably he's up there I'm not going to say he's up there because, uh, I mean, God, The Godfather, Godfather Part 2. I don't know if he hits Coppola level, but uh, he's up there for sure. Yeah, there's, there was a big wave of great directors in the 70s. As I said, we lost Peter last year and we, Billy this year, and uh, they're just age. I think Coppola's 84. De Palma's probably 83 or so. Scorsese's in his 80s. Yeah, those guys are just getting at the age where they're gonna we're gonna start losing them. <laughs> it's sad to see because that that was really like the last. I mean, I feel like we're starting to see it again a little bit with like a Damien Chazelle and a, a Denis Villeneuve and a few of those directors and Nolan, of course. But like other than that, there's very few like I would consider what we learned in film school as auteur filmmakers. 
there's I mean, there's very few, but the seventies just was an explosion of them after the sixties when we got to the set the seventies was just like the new wave for filmmaking. Yeah, the studio system died and filmmakers started the directors started helming their own stuff and that's what we got was the big boom in, in the seventies. And uh, it was I mean it was uncomparable, man. It was I mean some of them Scorsese came out of that, Lucas, Spielberg, Coppola, Friedkin, obviously. Uh Palma. Who else? Bogdanovich. Bogdanovich. Uh, uh, what's his name? He's not around anymore. Uh, he directed Nashville. Robert oh, Altman. Robert Altman. Robert Altman. And uh, it's, it's sorely missed. And I mean, I don't, I feel like we don't really get those anymore and like and like i said like all of you people that love like the conjuring or like any of the new wave possession movie like there's a possession movie a dime a dozen now every year it seems like there's always some and i mean never never will one do it like like the exorcist i i don't i don't you can't peak it you can't top it i don't know why they keep trying just like they're doing a sequel supposedly it's going to come out soon Actually, actually, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that's actually great. And I mean, I'm I will be watching it because I have this podcast. But they are it is kind of sad because the guys that David Gordon Green and Danny McBride that wrote the Halloween trilogy, that whole script, that whole mm. trilogy, the last trilogy that we got that's been. Ah, we don't even have to talk about those movies. They're not worth it. But uh they're now Blumhouse going to uh, have a new Exorcist trilogy. And uh, the first one called The Exorcist Believer comes out October 6th now. Actually, the date actually just got moved up yesterday. So this podcast is actually coming in timing in a lot of nice ways. But uh, yeah, October 6th, that one will be coming out and I will be watching it because I have this podcast and I mean... I am an Exorcist fan, so I am I am morbidly curious because they are bringing back uh, what's her name, Ellen Burstyn. Yeah, they're bringing her back. She's about ninety years old now. Yeah, I don't know. I was thinking of that. I was like, "How are you going to do a trilogy?" And I was like, "She's going to make it through the whole trilogy." Say her her daughter slaps her like in the first when she falls on the floor. There goes her hip, and that's the end of the movie. Yeah, like. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. So, like, I don't know how that's going to work. But I will say I did watch the trailer, and I hate to say this. I know Lawson is going to look down upon me, but because Lawson is in no support of that film whatsoever, he won't watch it, which I respect. I respect. I'm a curious I'm a curious little guy, so, you know, I'm going to watch it because I'm just – I do those weird things. I'm just a weird guy, but – uh I do those things. But anyway, yeah, we're going to uh, – I'm going to watch it. We're not going to because Boston definitely will not be watching it. But I will be watching it. And I did watch the trailer. I saw the trailer before a few movies I've seen in theaters. And the trailer did give me goosebumps because they did play the tubular bells. And it gave me goosebumps. And then I saw the mom. 
And then I was like, man, so I'm excited. I'm actually excited for it. It's kind of weird that uh, it's coming out so quickly after freaking die. It's kind of funny think, how life works. I don't think he wanted to see it. I think that's. <laughs> yeah, freaking died because of that movie. That's going to be the new narrative. We're I, push I, uh, I was looking forward to him ripping that movie a new one because I knew he would. You know, John Carpenter won't say anything about the new Halloween movies. He he just won't comment. But freaking never, he never held back from that. I was hoping he would rip that movie a new one. It's sad he won't be able to. Yeah, I would. I mean, I, I'm excited to watch the movie, but I would have loved to see what he thought about it. Which maybe I mean, he may have already seen it before he died. He probably did, honestly. He probably know. did that. Or he probably maybe didn't even want to watch it. He probably had no interest. He's probably like, nah, I'll just get rid of that movie. I don't care. Well, I know he he uh he regretted that he saw Exorcist too. He said he came close to suicide after watching that movie. Well, I mean, I will never watch that movie because of the <laughs> terrible stuff. And I mean, you can't don't do the sequel to The Exorcist. But uh I mean they did do a sequel to The Exorcist. The Exorcist three is actually a great movie. But it's not, I, they could have, I feel like they could have made that movie without it being a sequel. And that was more William Peter Blatty's doing. And I mean, Friedkin had nothing to do with it. It was, you know, all him. And I mean, it is, I mean, technically The Exorcist, that is his script. That's his story that he created. Friedkin just directed it. So if he wanted, you know, if William Peter Blatty's behind this new, you know, He's he died about six years ago. Well, <laughs> well, he's definitely not behind it then, unless, unless he's been possessing everybody. Yeah, he's going around possessing everybody, like make 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 some more. Which I I know he's kind of, he he was kind of famously known for like being touchy about his scripts from what I've seen and heard. Because he's in the, even the Exorcist three, he wanted to name it something different, didn't he? Uh, a legion, wasn't it? Yeah, Le well, he didn't want it to be an exorcist sequel, and I think they kind of forced him into it. But yeah. I think there's two two cuts of that movie. I've I've never seen the director's cut. I've just seen the theatrical one. Yeah, that's an interesting one. There is two cuts of that. I've seen the ending of both of them, and the theatrical is a better ending because it's more it's more uh, cinematic. Yeah, it's much more cinematic. George C. Scott. It's just amazing seeing him. Just yell, so yeah. Because like the director's cut, I'll just spoil it. I mean, the movie's been out since the '90s, so the director's cut. George, if you know the movie, uh, he talks to this entity that's in um, I think it's a mental hospital, isn't it? Like insane asylum. I think it's been a few yeah. years. Yeah, it's been a few years for me too. But it's like this insane asylum. And he's talking with this guy, and he ends up showing his – it's Brad Dorf who plays the guy. And then he ends up showing his face as Father Karras from the first movie. I mean, it's not really him, but it's like the demon messing with him. And Because, uh, of course, if you've seen The Exorcist, you know Father Karras is no longer with us. But uh, in the movie, uh, George C. Scott just walks in the, in the theatrical ending – there's like a whole big, the floor opens up. He's thrown against the wall. It's this big theatrical thing. There's a uh, nail to the cross. The uh, I think Father Karras is nailed to the cross, isn't he, when he comes up? 
No, it's the uh, it's a little boy that got killed. He's got the nails in his eyes. Oh yeah, okay. So it's a little boy. So I mean, yeah, <laughs> and uh, so it's a lot more theatrical, you know. Uh, this uh, not visceral, but like uh, visually more visually going on there. And uh, the and the director's cut ending is literally George C. Scott walks in, shoots the guy in the head, and then walks out. Yeah. So but- I mean. That's the most important part of a movie is the ending. You got to end big. I agree. I mean, I, I I like some endings that are minimal. I do, but I mean, with that movie, it had to have been something like it was in the theatrical. It couldn't have just been him just walking up, shooting him in the head, because then, because then that would have begged the question: Well, why didn't you just do that at the beginning of the movie? Yeah, a minimal film ending that I think really works is No Country for Old Men. So yeah, I agree. It goes both ways. Yeah, which I mean, this isn't Cohen Brothers, but No Country for Old Men is a masterpiece, and you guys all should go watch that now if you've never seen it. Like now, go run, <laughs> just click off of this. I don't, don't stop looking at my ugly face. I mean, Lawson's handsome guy, but like, you know, don't look at my ugly face. Go watch No Country for Old Men. I mean, yeah, I'd much rather you do that. You're better looking than both of us. He's got a lot better haircut. Yeah, Javier Bardem is just. Beautiful in that film. How much have you lost in a queen toss? Or, or whatever. What does he say? Gosh, it's been a while. Most, most you've ever lost in a coin toss. Yeah, what's, what's the most you've ever lost in a coin toss? <laughs> what? I don't know. <laughs> just the old man and that kills me. That'd have been a good short film. That just one scene. It is. Yeah, it's like a good little vignette of a film. I'm just him going in there and just he just the rapper slowly spreading across the desk is just so perfect. Oh, no country for old men. That could be another episode. No country for old men, honestly. But uh, we're on the Friedkin train today. Uh, yeah. So the French Connection was his best, uh, or not his best, but his first. Sorry, I still have I. Recently, if you've been wondering why I've been gone for so long, I had COVID and it's still messing with I've had COVID brain now. I feel like my brain is just foggy. So like if I mess up here, just blame it on the the big old C. I'm better now. I'm not positive anymore. I'm good. But uh yeah, blame it on the co if I mess up at any in this podcast, which I already have probably a million times, just that's what I'm gonna blame it on. But uh yeah, uh French Connection was his first big film. I think his first was it his it might have been his first film was it no he did uh he did a film with sonny and Cher called good times was his first movie i haven't ever seen it and if he did uh about four other movies most of them are based on plays before the french connection and i think he was dating howard hawks's daughter you know, howard hawks was another big director and he asked howard what he what howard thought of his movies and he said they he said, do something with a great chase in it. <laughs> and he did the French connection. I know a little tidbit there. See, this is why I have Lawson on for this tribute because I couldn't think of anybody better to have on for this tribute because, I mean, it, you, you know it. You've talked to the man. Yep. The God rest his soul. Yeah, when you text me... Uh that day said we'd lost freak and that that just ruined my whole day you know 
I know I look like a fake fan because I've only seen four of his movies. I, I held up a three, four. This is this is what this is what's happening here. But anyway, we're, we're like this before COVID. Don't lie. I know this man. That's true. Okay. Okay. We all know. Okay. It. Yeah. But anyway. So uh, we were. Uh, yeah, I texted him that, and uh, when I saw it, it ruined my like. It, like I've only seen four of his films, but like, and actually at that time I'd only seen three of his. Three, yeah, because I watched Sorcerer after he died, so three of his films. But the French Connection and the Exorcist had such an impact on me, and just the way I approach filmmaking, the way I think about filmmaking, and just the Exorcist alone is just. I mean, for the promotional stuff I did for this podcast, I mean, it's all Exorcist music and stuff because it's just, it's that iconic where it's just, you can't make another movie like that. And, uh, when he, the day he died, both me and Lawson, we just went into a state of despair. I mean, we, we probably already were, but like we went into more utter, complete despair because I mean, and that sounds silly because I mean, you know, I've never met the guy, I've never known the guy. Lawson's talked to him, but uh, but I mean, you know, it was brief. We were not like his brother, or best friend, or anything, but like that shows just how much of an impact he has on like young filmmakers. That like his death, you know, would do that to like people because it's, he was that important to filmmaking and uh, anybody who wants to go into like making movies, just watch Friedkin. Honestly, well, I mean, people like me and you, movies are our whole life. I mean, they're a huge part of our life. When a huge part of our life dies, it it affects us. I mean, we like. That film we made together, Phantom of the Fields, if you watch the ending scene in the bedroom of that, it's very, very, very uh, influenced by the ending scene in the bedroom of The Exorcist. Yeah, I was waiting for you to bring that that up, because that, that's also a nice little tidbit, is uh, his the short film that we made together is, uh, has some, even has Exorcist influence, and like, just being on, I remember when we were, and I mean, we can go into this. I mean, it's a little, I mean, we're bored plugging it, but it's okay. But uh, it's my show. I can do what I want. But anyway, we, uh, when we were making it, just even being on set, I remember us talking about freaking quite a bit. And like, just you talking, especially about like the takes about just, you know, one to three takes. And I mean, like, and I mean, you really did. I mean, he, I could really see the inspiration of freaking had on you just from being on set with you. Is just, and and even and seeing that, and then thinking about like going rewatching The Exorcist a few years ago. Might have been a year ago, actually. I can't, I can't remember when I rewatched The Exorcist. It's been like a year and a half, maybe. But just going back and revisiting that film, and then going and you know watching The French Connection a few years back, and then seeing Sorcerer recently. It's just. The man is just so important to filmmaking, and it I, that's why I wanted to do uh, this episode, just because I want to put the importance on his name and try to get his... I know he's dead now, so he can't really see the praise anymore, but uh, just shine a light on his work and like show more to his work because he really is just like 
so monumental for filmmakers. I mean, if you want to be a good filmmaker, you gotta you you have inspirations, you know. He, he always said, "Don't go to film school; just watch Hitchcock." And I agree. Everything. If you, I never went to film school, and if if you want to be a filmmaker, film school can help you with the, uh, you know, the technical side of it, learning all that stuff, and maybe build some connections. But the bare nut and bolt. So being a director, you can just watch watch other guys' films. You can watch Hitchcock or Friedkin, and you can learn how to tell a story visually. I mean, exactly. Like, I mean, honestly, when I, uh, I mean, I can say this because I actually, I have a degree in film technically, but uh, I learned more being on the set making Phantom of the Fields with Lawson and making uh the untitled self-portrait, the the film I made for uh, my, it was basically like a film thesis type of thing where you made a film for a class. And uh, I learned more just being on set, working with the camera, doing the shots, working, talking with the actors, talking with directors, other people working on the film. I think, ex I mean, experience is the best experience. Like getting on a set, that's the best. And I mean, but before that, yeah, exactly. Like, Watch just watching freaking you can be inspired like and I like I said it's just he's the only he started out live TV directing live TV in Chicago he's the only filmmaker I've ever heard of that made a film that saved anybody's life there was a, a black guy on death row for murder and the warden and the priest for death row all thought he was innocent and Billy made a documentary about it and the governor saw it and he pardoned the guy's life. And that was his start in the film business. He got jobs directing films after he made that documentary. Where was this? In? See, this is why I bring you. I'm like, I didn't even know that. Wow. That's called the people versus Paul Crump. I've never seen it. That's that's, but he he was he was at a party and he saw a priest. Just small conversation. The priest told him that he worked on death row, and he said, "Do you, you ever know anybody that you thought was innocent?" And he said, "This one guy there now." And Billy couldn't think about anything else the rest of the weekend. And he went and met the warden, met the guy, and made a documentary. And it came out in time enough for the governor to see it and pardon the guy before he went to the electric chair. I mean. That's just absolutely insane. That's crazy. He always said, he, he said, I didn't realize, he said, the power of film could save a man's life. He said, then I went to Hollywood and was quickly dispelled of that notion. <laughs> yeah. And the, I mean, that's, an, but like, yeah, I think we need to stress the importance of that. I mean, I didn't even know this information. Like, you just dropped a knowledge bomb on me right there. Like, I didn't even know this information until you just told me that. But that's just absolutely insane. Like, he actually saved the man's life with film. Like, and I mean, that's the whole point of, like, why I do this podcast, why we watch movies, why any of this, why any of this even makes sense is just because, and I think that's why we should celebrate Friedkin is because he got that. And, I mean, 
he was a symbol of that, that filmmaking is more than just filmmaking. It's more, films are more than just films. They, they live on, they become a part of the culture. They, uh, they can save lives. Like, like literally like films are just so important. He, he took his last breath a few weeks ago, but the exorcist is going to be around a lot longer than me and you ever will be. Exactly. Like, I mean, it, that will live on for years and years. That'll live on for probably at least another hundred years, probably. I mean, somebody somewhere would be like, the exorcist would come up somehow. And I mean, that's the power of film and making art is just, even when, you know, our time is up, I mean, the, the art lives forever. I mean, it goes on. And I mean, that's yeah. important to think about Friedkin is the best way to just like, you know, in honor of him is just watch his films, honestly. Because that was him. I mean, that was what he wanted to see. I, I mean, that's I mean, that's what he wanted to communicate to people when he made a film is, you know, you always want to communicate a theme or message. I mean, that that was him. If, if you watch movies, you can see the director's personality and their worldviews in their films. And Friedkin's a shining example of that. I agree. And like Deontay said right here, The Exorcist is like a titan in the movie business. I agree with that. It, it really it brought, is. They brought horror films into the mainstream and gave them respect that they didn't have. You know, before that, horror films were kind of B-movies. Or exploitation movies and then that got oscar recognition and then you had films later on like silence of the lambs get oscar recognition i mean you even look it up to now with what ari aster is doing with a24 and hereditary and midsummer i mean all of that is possible in a sense because of what friedkin did in the 70s with the exorcist and i mean of course he made other films so i, I don't want it to be a completely exorcist as exorcist centric show but like well when he uh that last interview he did before he died he he said when i die they're not going to say the guy that directed the sunny and share movie just died he said they're going to say the exorcist so he he knew that was going to be his legacy and i think he was proud of that and i mean it's it's he should be because that 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 will live on for absolutely forever i mean that will be ever it's just it's just like it's so he's so like important that it's hard to find the words to just to relay that importance to other people like me and people like Lawson and Deontay here in the chat and even Chris probably seen The Exorcist we all know how important William Friedkin is we all know how great The Exorcist is but like I don't think people understand the importance and the monumental amount of in just uh, amount of inspiration William Friedkin gave to the filmmaking filmmaking business in general and I mean that comes to the question from Deontay here where do you two put William Friedkin on your top 10 directors list where would you put him for you personally it's tough to say he's I'd say he's in my top 10 he's not in my top five and we got my favorite director, Sergio Leone. 
and you got Hitchcock, Roman Polanski, David Lean, and Spielberg are my top five. But I'd put Freakin' right after that, along with John Carpenter. And, uh, yeah. I mean, there's there's many great directors out there. Yeah, I I would put. I'd probably put say Freakin' is probably. I'd have to put him. He mounted even be in my top twenty or top ten. He's in my top twenty, obviously for sure, but. He 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 might crest top ten maybe at nine or ten, but I mean three of his movies are in like my top one fifty. Like I'd put The Sorcerer, French Connection, and Exorcist all in my top one hundred fifty favorite movies. Like I would, they're definitely up there. I mean, Exorcist is a top five favorite horror movie for me. So he's he's, he's definitely. If you go to favorites, I would yeah I would say he's in the top ten, but. As far as the influence he had on me, he's, I would say, definitely top five. And I mean, I have, I can honestly, I can attend to that. Just seeing, uh, we're make, making fans of the fields together, and uh, I would say the same for me, honestly. Like when I think about filmmaking advice, I one of the things I go to is Friedkin talking about the you know the one to three the one to three takes, and I think about his video where he goes. There's a great video on YouTube, and I forgot the name of it, where he goes over the chase scene in French Connection. Yeah. That uh, if you're into filmmaking, if you're a budding filmmaker, if you're somebody that wants to get into filmmaking, just watch freaking interviews and like, because they're all, they're also hilarious. Watch them for that too. But like, there's actually really in between the hilarity, there's actually like even the one with Nicholas Winding Refn, he actually just says some really great gives a lot of great knowledge in that interview. I think the reason I liked him so much is because, like I said, him and Peter Bogdanovich are the only two directors I ever had anything, any kind of personal contact with. Yeah. I mean, that's a, I mean, that's a special thing. And I mean, especially Peter. Just, and I mean, I mean, I'm milking that because I know a person that talked to William Friedkin. So <laughs> just, but even that, just even that, like, Hey, I know somebody that talked to William Friedkin, just William Friedkin is so monumental that just knowing somebody that talked to William Friedkin is just like a huge thing. Cause it's like, dang, William Friedkin, like, and like, I don't, it's hard to really grasp around it if you're not in the filmmaking community. I think, I think William Friedkin definitely has a stay in the filmmaking community. Like a, when you talk to a lot of people, uh, at least from my experience, that are into film and stuff like that, they know of William Friedkin. They, uh, they know of his importance. But, like, outside of that, the mainstream really does not. And, uh, you know, this isn't just, this isn't like Joe Rogan or anything, like a huge podcast. But, like, I wanted to put my effort and do anything I could to uh, – bring more awareness to him especially since he just sadly passed away and his birthday was just this past week i'll be interested to see his new film that is premiering at the venice film festival tomorrow i don't know when it's going to hit mainstream release but i'll definitely watch that one do you know what it's called uh the Kane mutiny court martial i think it's got Kiefer sutherland starring in it that'll be interesting I didn't know he was working on it. Yeah, I'll check it out, too. Uh, 
Singleton Tarantino switches me. Friedkin is probably his seventh or eighth. I mean, that's probably, I mean, you got him higher than me. He's probably my ninth or tenth. So, I mean, yeah. Some great J.J. Abrams. That's an interesting one. I can, I mean, I can see that. Super 8. Super 8's a really good movie. Uh, Scorsese, of course. Tarantino, of course. Nolan Singleton, of course. But, uh, yeah, for me, if I was going top five directors, I mean, Lawson's like an, the old man when it comes to film here. I like this, I'll say, because like he likes the older directors, and he probably's like, oh, Jacob with his mainstream stuff. But like, my favorite director is Christopher Nolan, always number one. And then I Spielberg is probably. Uh, Spielberg is probably number two. Scorsese's definitely top. I can't say Scorsese's not. Scorsese's somewhere in the top five. Uh, Tarantino is probably top five. And then uh, Denis Villeneuve, actually, which a lot of people. I just love Denis Villeneuve. I mean, Blade Runner 2049, Dune, Arrival, Enemy, Sicario, Prisoners. I mean, that's that's an underrated guy, too. That makes that you can make great films, but yeah, that'd probably be my top five if I was going. So Friedkin's probably nine or ten, honestly. When I think about it, I'd have to think more. There's so many directors out there that you think about because, like, I love like Michael Mann is probably number six, honestly. Michael Mann has grown huge mind like michael mann has become one of my favorites quickly just i love michael mann his style the vibes everything about michael mann he is i'm a michael mann stan now and then uh de palma he i mean de palma did a lot of the only problem with de palma is you don't have hitchcock you don't have de palma and i mean you, you can say that for the exorcist and like all these possession movies but really if you don't have Hitchcock, you really don't have De Palma because he takes so much influence from Hitchcock. That's my only issue. His later career wasn't really that. Uh, Scarface, I don't see a lot of Hitchcock in that. Yeah, like Scarface, yeah. Or Carlito's Way or um, Untouchable. I think those are pure, pure De Palma film. You can definitely see the influence of the camera movement and really visually telling a story. But unless it's a film like uh, Body Double or... Uh, Dress to Kill. I don't see a big Hitchcock influence in De Palma's films. Yeah, like Dress to Kill was his basically psycho, honestly. And but I love Dress to Kill. I honestly do. Dress to Kill is amazing. And uh, Scarface too. Body Double sucked. We watched that together. Yes, me and him watched that together. Body Double uh, is basically just copying Vertigo and uh, what's the other one? Rear Window. Rear window. Rear window and vertigo is, is, is that's what body double basically is. It's a it's it's it, it's not good, but uh yeah. Uh, I'm gonna swap Abrams for Sam Raimi. Actually, Sam is five and Abrams is six. I like Sam I mean, Raimi. Sam Raimi. We wouldn't have. I mean, I'm wearing a Spider-Man shirt right now. We wouldn't have superhero movies that, that we do today if it wasn't for Sam Raimi. Or horror. I mean, Sam Raimi is a big horror influence as well. Army of Darkness. Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, Evil Dead 
Uh, oh, there's only three, you idiot. There's a remake. There's a remake. I was thinking of the remake. It's not Raimi, though. But yeah, Evil Dead is just... I mean, we talked about Evil Dead a few episodes back when Evil Dead Rise came out. I think that was actually my first episode. Was the, talking about Evil Dead. So like, yeah. So like you see, and that's like... I know this is a free contribute, but like when you get in that conversation, you can see like directors just... Uh, film is so important. That's such a like. I feel like that's just like the most basic, s stupid statement ever. Just film is so important, man. But like, I remember, uh, I remember Friedkin saying in an interview that films beget other films. He saw Citizen Kane and was so inspired he wanted to make films. And we see his movies, and now we want to make films. And somebody's hopefully going to see our movies and want to make films. Yeah, it's just, just such a. I mean, it's just, there's so much, it's just, it's hard to put into words the importance of film. And uh, like I said, that's why we're doing this. Freaking is just was so important to film and what he did. I mean, we wouldn't have the chase scenes we would have if it wasn't for him breaking laws and the French connection. We wouldn't have the conjuring insidious, like I said, if it wasn't for him making the exorcist it's just he is such a monumental director i mean he's of import when it comes to importance i mean he's probably more important than 90% of directors honestly i mean he's one of the most important when it comes to like what we see now in modern day cin cinema and what we've been seeing for the past 50 years, 40 years. So. And he, uh, he, he was so versatile. The films he made, the life he lived. He, he went over to Europe and directed uh, a couple operas in the 90s. Like live operas. He, he loved uh, European culture. He was, he loved uh, art. He, he, uh, you know, he just was a very cultured guy. And it shows in his films. Yeah, I mean, it does. Uh, the, the, ex the famous shot in The Exorcist uh, of the car pulling up and the light shining down from the window, he got that from a painting. That's interesting. I mean, the most iconic shot for me is, of course, the priest. Max von Sydow's priest. Standing outside under the street lamp. That's the one he got from the painting. It's it just. Was, I don't remember what the painting was called. My memory's too bad. Yeah, it's just it's just beautiful and like, I mean that comes to ask Deontay's asking, would we ever do a supernatural horror film? I mean, we kind of did. I mean, he did. It's his film. Uh, I I just helped, but Phantom of the Fields. Is I mean it's a supernatural horror film technically. Yeah. I mean. I went for more of a thriller than a horror, but yeah, I guess it's got some horror stuff in it. But yeah, people, people have told me anyway that they thought it was. Yeah, I mean, and go and I mean it, you can even see in that film um, Wes Craven influence too. I mean, but probably John Carpenter more than anybody. John Carpenter. Just, I felt like I was on a John Carpenter set when I was on set. 
when I was when you make the film with all the blue lights. The John John was probably number one biggest influence in film for me. But freaking yeah. freaking certainly in West, yeah. It's in Spielberg, a lot of guys. You see great films and you want to make great films. Exactly. And like like for me, especially lately, watching Michael Mann, he's really influenced. Like, that's such a weird, like a lot of people, you know, a lot of people will say, you know, Spielberg, Scorsese, Tarantino. I'm over here, Michael Mann. But like, just Michael Mann's, I really, I want to create movies like he does where it has such a vibe and atmosphere. Like Michael Mann, because we might as well just call this to every, our favorite director's tribute at this point. But like, not to get on tangent here, but Michael Mann, I think he is, when it comes to atmosphere, he is one of the best at atmosphere. Michael Mann, just his films just all have that, even if they're not great, like even films like Black Hat, which is about a hacker, uh, not a great movie. Chris Hemsworth is in it. I mean, the guy that plays Thor for all you Marvel fans, but uh, it's not a great movie, but it still has an atmosphere and like collateral, heat, uh, Manhunter, even his Miami Vice film. And I mean, he made the TV show of Miami Vice uh, or directed it. Uh, just the vibes. Michael Mann just knows how to do vibes. And that's that's kind of how I want my I want my films to be have the right have like a vibe to them like and like an atmospheric feel to them and Michael Mann is definitely a big influence. Noah is probably my number one. I've been a Noah fan since I got into film. Noah was the first director where I was like, you know, man, that's a that's a guy. I mean, Spielberg technically would probably be the first when I was a little kid with Jurassic Park and Jaws and stuff, but like. I'm talking like if I thought about it, Nolan is probably mine when it comes to just like inspiration because he is so down to detail and so just like studies. I mean, like the man is like a master of physics just so he could make a movie. I mean, like he is super brain intelligence and uh, he's a big one for me too. But yeah, I mean, and that freaking will always be there though, just with the exorcist. And yeah, I mean, would we ever do a supernatural horror film? I mean, Fame of the Field. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I'd like to at one point or another. I mean, it'd be hard. It would be really hard because, like, I don't know how you... It's hard to go into supernatural... Because when you think about supernatural horror, you think about, like, Exorcist, obviously, and, like, ghosts and stuff like that. So it's hard to, like go into making a film and being like, well, I'm going to make a supernatural horror, but then you're like, well, it's never going to be as good as the exorcist. So what's the point? Like, like, I mean, a guy trumped me back in the seventies. Like I'm already behind. Like, uh, that's what Friedkin always said. The, I mean, the last interview he ever gave, they were talking about the exorcist and he said, you know, I'll never make a film as good as citizen Kane. And he said, he said, anybody that's ever seen that movie, he said, you know, my movies are going to be, wanting he said but that's okay that's just the way it is that's you know that's just uh you see great films that on one side of the coin you want to make great films on others you say i can never do that <laughs> i can't make it that good but it, yeah. that also shows how humble freaking was he, he always said that 
his movies were like fast food compared to the gourmet meals of his favorite films, like Citizen Kane and Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which his films are gourmet meals to me. Yeah. Like, and that's another thing about Friedkin is like, you know, we talk about him, you know, being very, he's, he's very, you know, blase about things and he's very, uh, matter of fact and he he's he's a no bullshit director but also he's very he's very nice and kind and like you can tell that and he's very humble at the same time like he's he doesn't think he's the top you know he just makes films because he loves making films and i mean that's he was never pretentious and a lot of directors can't say that yeah like i i I mean i love no one but no one's been, been pretentious before i mean like Freaking, yeah, I've never, like, Freaking has never been pretentious from what I've seen. I've never got an ounce of any of that from any of his films. Whereas, like, some of my other favorite filmmakers, I could say they have. So, like, that's another thing. He was just so realistic with his approach. And maybe that comes from his documentary background, you know, or working, you know, live TV and stuff. Maybe that, you know, maybe that's where that comes from. But, like, it was always just real and raw and visceral like visceral is the, the best word to describe really his films are so visceral and it's just i remember that last interview he ever gave he said he said that's why we make films for an audience he said i've never made a film for myself and a lot of directors make films for themselves and it shows but at the end of the day it's a medium where you're entertaining an audience and he he understood that yeah i mean there's a fine line i mean yeah, I mean, he, yeah, he he never compromised what he liked or what he wanted, but he understood. He he walked that fine line of making the stuff he wanted to make his own way, and also making it for an audience and not being pretentious about it. He he, I mean, arguably, I think he walked the line better than a lot of directors that we would consider better than him. He walked the line better when it comes to that part. And like Deontay right here says, no one is a beast. Yes, he is. I agree. I heart heart a hundred hearts. No one's my guy. Uh, found footage and save money when it comes to the supernatural horror films. I mean, yeah, we could do that. But when I when I think about found footage, I'm like, who wants to sit down and watch this shaky camera moving? Shaky cam nowadays. Come on, guys, find a steady cam and do it right. Yeah, I will say, like, Paranormal Activity, I've never been a fan of. I'm just like, I don't Blair. like, I, you got to have some. I will say, I am a hypocrite there because I do like Blair Witch. I do I like the Blair Witch Project. I know you, I already know you don't like it. Like, I, yeah, I can, I could already guess that. But, like, for me, yeah, I like the Blair Witch Project. But other than that, that's about found footage for me is the Blair Witch. Tarantino is pretentious. Yeah, Tarantino can get that way with dialogue, especially. He likes to... He indulges a little too much. Like, I mean, the film behind me, Once Upon a Time... Oh, my God, I'm moving weird. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood poster. I mean, you could argue he got a little pretentious with that film. I liked it. I love it. But, like, you could argue because there's... He could... he It could be, it could be a shorter film. But, I mean, we love Tarantino, so we're like, oh, it's okay because it's Tarantino. But, like, yeah, I mean, I like I like Tarantino, but I think he's overrated in a lot of ways. Some of his films and characters feel like cartoon characters. Their dialogue and the way they act and the situations. I 
I can agree with that. I really can. I don't see a groundedness and a reality uh, in his films, especially when you especially when you see a film by like Billy Friedkin. That, that his films are so real, and Tarantino's are like I say, kind of cartoonish. But I still like. I think Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs are great films. Yeah, I mean that and then Django are my top three for Tarantino. Which I know you're not a big fan of Django, but couldn't get into that one. Blair Witch scarred some folks. Yeah, because well, I mean, a lot of the Blair Witch thing is though, is when it came out, they uh they marketed it as a real thing, like they marketed like the people were actually in the woods, and like they even had a because this was back when like the internet first started, so like they even had a website where like you could go to and it would like be like help find these missing kids, and like they had like. You know, it was in like newspapers and stuff, and like the marketing was just so good on the like the Blair Witch Project. If you're, I, I mean, I have a minor in marketing, so like I, I admire that because it is like the marketing, marketing of that film was top tier. Like they made it seem real and it scared people, and people thought they were watching real things, which really, I mean, I mean, I guess you could maybe see that, but like they're not going to let you watch somebody actually die on a in a movie theater so i mean i mean you, you, i mean technically you don't see anybody die but i mean yeah blair witch did, definitely did scar some people especially you know late 90s i mean it was the, the huge rage i mean it's what created paranormal the, what, again if we talk about influence the paranormal activity doesn't ha, doesn't exist if there's not a blair witch there's like the Conjuring, Insidious, all those don't exist if there's not. Think about that. The Conjuring and the Insidious are arguably two of the highest grossing horror franchises of all time. Now, like when it comes to like box office, they are the highest grossing. Of, they're up there for sure. I mean, Halloween, obviously. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th. I mean, there hasn't been one in over a decade now, so we can't really count those anymore. But like, I mean, the highest grossing box office especially now yeah conjuring insidious and i mean the one for freaking directing the exorcist we wouldn't have those and i mean that's another thing when i i saw the conjurings before i watched the exorcist i'm pretty sure i think i saw them before i had seen the exorcist so i watched them first and then i watched the exorcist and then when i came back to the conjuring and the conjuring 2 they didn't hold up as well They're valued. I mean, I still love the first Conjuring. It's in my top ten favorite horror films of all time. I do still love the first Conjuring. The Conjuring Two is a great sequel. It's not one of my. It was in my top. Both of them were in my top five favorite horror films of all time at one point, which is crazy to me to even admit that. I feel like I should turn in my film lover card. On delete, delete my letterbox immediately. Just go on letterbox and just delete it. But like, yeah, because like when you rewatch those movies, yeah, they're not masterpieces, but. When you watch The Exorcist and you go back to those, you're like, well, it's like you see the influence there and you're like, well, The Exorcist, I mean, I could just watch The Exorcist if I want to watch Possession. Like, you know, I'd rather watch it. I love James Wan, but I mean, I'd probably watch Friedkin over James Wan. And I think I think the reason The Exorcist was so effective is something a lot of modern horror films miss. That's he showed the characters normal their normal life let the audience get invested in them and then slowly slowly kind of added in the 
supernatural things and the mom had a, a total re real reaction she was what the hell's going on they take her and get her test and the tests come back everything's okay and it's portrayed totally realistically and not voodoo doctory at all yeah like that's yeah that's the thing like they they i mean she has like cat scans they take her to the doctor like they like really it's not really even a possession movie until the third act almost it's really like a investigation what's going on with this girl something's not right i mean there's a little bit of supernatural elements where like she goes in the attic and the flame goes out and you know she's talking to mr howdy on the ouija board or whatever but like it's really uh it's very procedural how he goes through it like he's like the mother you know she's not religious so she takes him to the doctor and then it ends up i think she ends up with the catholic church or something they're like yeah, he was, laughs at her at first when she's asked about an exorcism he laughs it off and says we kind of do psychiatry now yeah like it's it's done so realistically that i think that's why it's better because when you look at films like the conjuring they bring in the the warrens like immediately after stuff starts creepy stuff starts happening i mean i get that because i mean i mean when you do see chairs flying around i mean but at the same time you're not as invested in the characters because you didn't spend as much time with them no the character work is just on a different level it's just a different echelon of character work and the conjuring you're just kind of waiting for the next scare and the exorcist you're invested in the whole film the conjuring you're waiting on the you know the to see the demon to see the creepiness you know and again i'm not downing the conjuring because i love james wan and i mean it's top 10 horror film for me but it's just a difference of filmmaking and it just just shows how good i mean the conjuring is still great and it shows how good the exorcist is which and he never saw it as a horror film. He always said that interview after interview, he never saw The Exorcist as a horror film. He didn't try to make it scary. He said he tried to make a film about the mystery of uh, faith. And you get that. And like, the it's especially, I will give him credit because the person I showed it to, I showed her the, the director's cut. So that message kind of does get lost in the director's cut a little bit about the whole him regaining his faith. It kind of gets lost. But like uh, a lot of people don't see that in that film. And it's so crazy to me that that theme is still missed. Like it, it's so pre like you can see if you just watch it, it's so prevalent. It's not just the little girl spinning her head, throwing up pea soup. It's not just that her doing graphic things with the cross it's not that i mean it is that but some of that's hilarious but like it's it's more than that it's there's more there's the actual theme being told there's something you know father Karras is the main character it's not the little girl it's not the mom you know it's father Karras, and we don't even get introduced to him until a little bit later in the film like we start out with max von Sydow and like it's just, it's so, I guess he put it in there so well that some people just, it goes over their heads. But like, I mean, I saw it from the jump. It was about a guy regaining his faith back. I mean, it's, it's, uh, the exorcist is a masterpiece. What else can more can we say about it? I mean, 
Also, also the performances he got in that film, which I think most, I think a lot of people know the techniques he used. I mean, uh, when Jason Miller gets scared by the phone ringing, when he jumps, it's he jumped because Billy Freakin shot off a shotgun five foot from him. <laughs> he fired a shotgun beside him to make him jump and take. Uh, when the priest gives uh, Karis the last rites when he dives off the stairs, he's doing you know the sign of the cross and he's shaking. He's shaking because he did ten takes that didn't work, and so Billy slapped him across the face as hard as he could, and then made him do it. And he, the shock of it made him shake like that. Yeah, and I mean some of that's question mold for today's. <laughs> You know, you could question that today. I mean, I, I definitely would not be slapping anybody on my film set. But, like, at the end of the day, you can't argue with what the product you got. You got a great, you got a masterpiece. That was his personality, though. If you watched his interviews, you know that you expect something like that from him. Yeah, it's just, that's yeah, you think they would have kind of expected something going into a film with him. You know, and, uh. Not condoning that, of course, but, you know. Uh, on Killer Joe, a bunch of the characters have nude scenes, and Billy, uh, they said uh, they did a documentary about him. They said Billy just stripped all his clothes off in front of the crews. They say it's no big deal. Let's do this. <laughs> he was very encouraging, and he was just in it. He was one of a kind. I mean, he... Wild guy. He's a wild man. And, uh... Just, I there's just not much more you can say about Friedkin, honestly. I think we just exhausted it all. <laughs> like, he's just, I just want to stress, like, again, the importance of him. And oh, actually, there is something else we can, uh, you know, about this, you, you, you. Tell me about this, uh, about how the score came. Oh, for The Exorcist? Yeah. Yeah, he uh, he went to meet um, Bernard Herman, who did uh, Taxi Driver, most of Hitchcock's films, one of the greatest composers we ever had. And he wanted, I think Bernard wanted to... First, he watched the film and he came out of the screening room. He said, "Okay, I think I can save this piece of shit." He said, "I'm gonna go down. I'm gonna go down to this church and there's a nice organ and I'll score it." And Billy said, "You're gonna score the the Exorcist on a church organ?" And he goes, "Yeah." And he said, "Thank you. Have a nice day." And he fired him. Fired one of the greatest composers of all time. And I think he turned down uh, scores from other directors. I mean, other composers and. Uh, he ended up using temp tracks for the whole thing. Tubular bells he found in a library of uh, temp tracks. I believe it was a. There's like dial. There's like talking after the initial theme. It's not a song. It's I forgot what it was used for, but he got all of that out of temp tracks. Yeah, he, he was so hands-on in that film that uh, he would he would have people go to the. Uh, theaters and if they had a hole in their uh screen that they projected it on he wouldn't give them a print of the exorcist he made them go out and buy a new screen i mean he was so hands-on in that film 
to make it the best experience that the audience could have. And I mean, that was something intriguing that I love is just that the fact that he, he could have had Bernard Herman, who obviously, I mean, you know, like you said, one of the greatest composers of all film composers of all time. And instead he just says, bye, you know, get out of here. And then, literally just uses temp tracks which if if for people that aren't into like film knowledge and no film it's just like stuff you can it's basically like public access type stuff like you know stuff you can just find basically like you don't have to you know it's not like it's not scored for that film it's you know you just you know you find it and like they, they use it a lot during editing like you know like in the early processes of editing and uh Stanley Kubrick yep. did the same thing with uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. He did the same thing uh, with uh, that. But uh, that's what Tim Tracks are. But yeah, like he just used what he found in like Tuber Bells. Now you can't hear that without thinking about The Exorcist. It's one of the most iconic scores in a horror film. And he got that just from, you know, he didn't. They didn't score that. I mean, that's, that's just. That's a big lesson from his career is don't compromise on your. If you have a film in your head, don't compromise on it. Yeah, I mean, here's I mean, yeah, he just came off the French Connection. I mean, he and then and he talked about this in that interview with Nicholas Winding Refn. He said, yeah, he was a little full of himself at the, at the time during those during the 70s. He said that he he was he thought he was he couldn't be hurt. He said he did feel a little up there i remember because i watched that interview right after he died again and he he did say that where he was like yeah you know he's like i thought you know when the sorcerer he's like i thought i couldn't you know i thought it couldn't bomb like i couldn't be touched you know so he did have an arrogance to him arguably i mean well credited he made the french connection the exorcist he's, so he I, wasn't I, I was listening to a uh, little clip of an audiobook he did and he, he talked about his arrogance, the missed opportunities he had from it. He said he came into his office when he was shooting cruising. There was an envelope on his desk. And he opened it up and there were some paintings inside. And he didn't like them. And this artist wrote him a letter saying that he was a fan and he made him these paintings. And Billy said, I threw them away. I just threw them in the trash. And uh, he said, years later, I saw that artist's name and one of his paintings sold from that period sold for $15 million. He said, I also got a, a cassette tape on my desk. I listened to it. He said it, he said it wasn't something I would be interested in. And it was a letter uh, from an artist wanting me to direct, uh, to direct a uh, music video. This guy's name was Prince. He said, I never answered his call. And uh, just like that, he said his arrogance cost him a lot. But I think he learned from it. Yeah. And I mean, I didn't know that story. That's crazy. That Prince wanted him to direct the music video, but like, that's absolutely insane. But like, so I mean, because like you know, because we don't want to prop him up like he's God either. I mean, he he's he's human, so he all had faults. I mean, he was just coming off the French Connection and Exorcist. You know, he you know he made two masterpieces. I mean, you know, when you're younger and you're in that, I mean, it. it can't go to your head easily so like yeah but like again in his older days like i watched an interview he said he regrets a lot of that and that he wished he wouldn't have acted like that and he wished he wouldn't 
the arrogance like he, you know, just like anybody else would. And also in that interview, he says something great about, uh, I, oh my gosh, my brain is so terrible. There's something he said in that interview that I wanted to bring up that was really important. What was it? What was it? What was it? What was it? He was talking about, oh, I know what it was. He was talking about how he wanted, when he was making Sorcerer, which is when nice segue from the Exorcist to Sorcerer. When he was making Sorcerer, he wanted it because he said when he, when he would go to other countries and they would show the Exorcist, they didn't have subtitles. So, like, people, you know, and there's a lot of dialogue in The Exorcist, so, like, people didn't understand what was going on. So, he said when he made Sorcerer, he wanted to tell as much visually as he could possible. Like, he didn't want, he wanted as minimal dialogue as he could because he wanted everybody from every, this is how much he wanted to entertain people. And, like, this is how much he cared about his audience and cared about, like, fans of films and, like, gay film fans all, the you know, credit is because... He wanted to make films where anybody in any country could watch it and understand the story. And in this interview, he said that uh, he wanted to uh, make Sorcerer as minimal dialogue as possible where, you know, you could watch it and no, nobody would, you know, nobody would uh, be confused. Like you could get the story just by visuals. That's what he wanted to do. And, uh, I feel like for the most part he did that with Sorcerer because it is there is a lot of minimal it is very minimal in dialogue when you compare it to French Connection or Exorcist. Uh, you know the open and the opening is so interesting because it's a foreign film for the first like twenty minutes. Like it's told in like different and it's different languages because you're following four different people. So like the first 20, 30 minutes, there's not a lot of English being spoken. And then then, it, then they start talking English once they start getting to know each other. But for like that movie is subtitled for like half. And it's like people walked out. I think they had to put a sign in the lobby saying this is not a foreign speaking film because I think they had trouble with people walking yeah. out. Yeah, he said that he actually said that he said that in an interview with Nicholas Winding Refn. He said people kept walking out because they thought it was a foreign film. But like. For me, it worked because like I, I knew I was like, OK, this is, you know, you know, I knew just from knowing about it. But like it works because, I mean, it's realistic. You know, people aren't going to talk in English in every country. So, I mean, it's because three of is it. Yeah. Three of the people aren't even American. I mean, three of the main characters aren't American. And uh and their English isn't their first language. Three people. One's French. I want to say one's uh, somewhere in South America, I think it is. I can't remember. And then another one is, I think, uh, the Middle East or something, I'm going to say. But, yeah, like three of them aren't even from uh, America. And, like, they're all terrible people. Like, if you look at them, from they're, you know, they're not good people. And they all convene in this little town. And they're basically, it's basically almost, it's, and he even says this in the interview, it's about destiny and how like fate, that's what sorcerer like, is, is about, it's like destiny and fate. And like, you know, they did these terrible things and then, then it leads them all to this village where 
they can do this one thing and then maybe they can get out I think because they'll get paid and they can get out of this terrible spot they're in. But then as you watch, fate gets all of them. And even at the end, you think it's a happy ending for a little bit or maybe, I mean, I, with Friedkin, I was like, you know, I didn't expect a happy ending, but like for a lot of people probably watching that, you know, the ending is, I mean, Roy Scheider, he's, he's got, he got the money. He's dancing with a random waitress that was there at the restaurant. And then it just ends with people that were looking at, looking for him for a long time, finally catch up to him. And then that whole movie is about destiny and fate. And it's such a masterpiece because you get it. And none of that is told in dialogue. Like none of it is dialogue. Like there's no conversation about destiny or fate or anything. Like none of that's in the movie. There's not like a whole exposition where they're like, "Yeah, I'm a terrible person, so you know, fate's catching up to me or destiny." And like, and nowadays in films they would talk like that. And his film, you never, they never mention destiny or fate once. And I mean, Sorcerer, it's literally on the side of a, car, a truck. Like it's not even mentioned in the film. And it's all about. And he tells it all visually. Like you get, you get that it's about destiny and fate just because you see how terrible these characters are and uh, just what they're doing. And I mean, yeah. you get that. just like in that conversation I had with him, he said that his career was a happy accident. He said it was just fate that I got into this business and luck. So that they were. He was a big believer in that. But going back to Sorcerer, how great was that bridge scene? Yeah, like, abs just absolutely insane. And I remember watch I watched a video on the making of it. And uh, I can't remember. Did they do, like, I know some of it was in a real actual river, but I think some was on a soundstage, wasn't it? I, I remember a lot. It would have almost had to have been with all the rain and the wind they had. I don't know yeah. how they could have out in the middle of the jungle, but either way, you know, there, there's no CG. They did it. They had a guy out on a, a bridge with a truck on it, and the bridge was rope and wood. You could tell that guy wasn't having a good time. <laughs> yeah, and they say that, like, and all the actors did their stunts. Like every every time you see their face, it's actually them. It's not. I mean, of course, they use doubles and like when you can't see them from far away and stuff. But like every time you see their face, it's actually the actors. There's no trickery. There's no work. So like even the actors were in some dangerous situations there and they did their own stunts. And I think he said like I forgot which one, but one of the actors wasn't too fond of that. But like uh, he also said that he was uh a lot of those guys that he, he didn't even want to cast like that cast came together by fate too. It oh, was the middle Eastern guy. The middle Eastern guy is the only guy that he actually wanted to play the part. Like he got him to play the part, but the other three, he wanted other people to play the parts. He wanted Steve McQueen for Scheider's part. And he said he was too arrogant. McQueen wanted, uh, his wife. He wanted his wife to be an executive producer, and he said, "I would today. I would do that in a heartbeat to have Steve McQueen in that movie." But I mean, he didn't want to compromise his vision. He's like, "I don't want some 
you know, he's like, you have to give her, because he had to give her executive producer was the thing. He's like, you know, he's like, I don't want her to be on it because, you know, and like, that's, I mean, that's understandable. I mean, he didn't compromise his vision. And honestly, I think it worked out because it's a masterpiece in my eyes. So, I mean, I don't, I think it, Roy Scheider did just as good as anybody. You talk about casting. Did you hear the story about the, uh, I can't think of his name on the French connection, the one that gets in the train and waves like that as he's driving off. Yeah. I forgot what he said though. He said, uh, I know what you're talking about. There's a, he said to his casting director, there's a guy in this, uh, film called Belle du Jour, which is a good film, by the way. He said, you know, the guy that played this, he said, give me that. He said, oh yeah, his name's, uh, I think Fernando Ray is what he said. And, uh, he said, yeah, get me that guy. And he goes to pick up the guy at the airport and it's a totally different guy. And, uh. He said, we're driving to the, we're driving to the hotel. And he said, he said, are you, you're Fernando Ray, right? He said, oh yeah. He said, you're in, uh, Belle du Jour. He said, oh, I wasn't in Belle du Jour. He said, I was in some other films by Louis, <laughs> Louis Benwell. And, uh, he said, well, you know, just what I would envision, you have to shave your, your goatee. He said, oh, I could never shave my goatee. And he said, okay. And he dropped him off at the hotel and he called the casting agent. He said, you dumbass. He said, you cast the wrong guy. He said, he wasn't in Belle du Jour. And so he, he said, well, let me look into it. And uh, he called him back. He said, the guy you want is Francisco Rabal. He said, he's not available. He's working on another film and he can't speak a word of English. And so they were stuck with Fernando Ray and he gave a great performance in the film. It's just a piece of luck. Yeah. And that's just, it's just crazy, man. It's that, and and I mean, if, one, I, if you want to take one of the, one of the things to take away definitely from this is go watch Sorcerer. It's an underseen masterpiece in my opinion. I think more people should see it. And, uh, cause it actually blew me away when I went, like it shocked me. Cause I was like, when I was going into it, I was like, you know, it came out in the 70s. I was like, you know, I don't know how this is going to be. And then I was like, this is, it's an epic. Like, it's epic in scale. Like, it is huge in scale. Like, it is definitely him going balls to the wall with everything. Like, he's just like, you know, we're going to have a monsoon happen on this sound. You know, we're going to have a giant truck on a bridge. We're going to have huge explosions. I mean, like. Like he he went all out on it, and it's, in my opinion, his underseen masterpiece. That's it's just epic. Yeah, it's a shame it didn't do well at the box office. I'd watch it over Star Wars any day. Yeah, it's an epic tale of fate, and I just I and fate and destiny, and I I I, I love it. It's great. So definitely go check out Sorcerer if you have not. And uh, of course, Exorcist and French Connection check out obviously. And I I would also. I can't recommend the other ones because I haven't seen them beside, but I would recommend the hunted. I would say definitely check that out too. I would say watch to live and die in LA. That's that one's pretty good. Because I mean, it's just amazing what he did for film and just in general. And if you want to be thoroughly entertained, watch his, watch his interviews on YouTube. 
Yeah, I'm just uh Is there anything else you got on Friedkin? Any tidbits in any information? Tidbits. I'm sure there are. I can't think of any right now. You just there's a there's a lot with that guy. It's one of the most interesting, talented, insane filmmakers of all time. Yeah, and I mean, I think Walson closed it out with that. I think because I mean, we really don't have it must. I mean, we stressed his importance. We went over the French Connection. We mainly talked about the Exorcist, which I tried to refrain from, but it's just so hard to talk about Freakin without talking about the Exorcist. Like it's so, so difficult. So. I mean, the Exorcist. We got great information there, and then this we Sorcerer. I feel like we covered enough. Uh, the French Connection. I would have liked to cover a little bit more, but I just I just haven't seen it in a few years, and my memory's so bad that I just I'd have to rewatch it again. But like, definitely go check out all three of those: To Live and Die in L.A. and uh, The Hunted for sure, and. Uh, Check out the rest too. Just check out all freaking honestly. Yeah, don't don't take our don't take our opinions. That's the thing about film that we could watch it and think it's great, and you guys would think it's terrible, or vice versa. Yeah, I just think it's boring or whatever. You know, it's just just know that like freaking is was is and will always be a legend. Like. He understood human nature better than I think any filmmaker I've ever seen. I agree with that. I agree with that. He was so he was so good at just telling great stories in morally gray areas and morally gray characters, and it's just amazing what he did. And a nice man. But ever since his passing, there's been a big hole in cinema that I don't think will ever be filled yeah i don't think you can replace freaking i'm not sure what the modern landscape of film would be if we didn't have freaking i I mean i i completely i I completely agree and i mean look at me i'm i'm we wouldn't have we wouldn't have great filmmakers like jacob smith if we didn't have freaking oh yeah oh yeah just the greatest filmmaker of all time. Never, uh, never been a director, but yeah, greatest just, filmmaker. Wait, watch how good this guy is. Well, I appreciate that. I know you're just lying to the audience, but I appreciate that. I think because I feel like after that you're gonna cuss me out. But like, yeah, yeah, I. We'll we'll see we'll see we'll We're see where working on films right now so yeah me and him to really close the broadcast out me and him are we're gonna be we're writing and directing two films right now in tandem and uh they will be in production sometime when our when our crazy selves like actually quit procrastinating and get it done but you know what you can't rush greatness that's what i say 
you can't rush greatness. And I think you're going to really enjoy these two great films that come out from me and him. You're going to see both of them under Lawson Filmworks, by the way. The new A24, the new production company, the new one. So forget A24, forget Neon, Lawson Filmworks, because it's going to have a film by Lawson again, of course. I mean, he's in the name. And then a film by little old Jacob Smith. Jacob R. Smith, I am known as. But, uh, on IMDb. Yes, on, I am on IMDb, actually, as an I am the Phantom. And uh, and actually, that's a great plug. Go watch, again, watch The Phantom of the Fields. Watch the original, and then watch the director's cut. Watch both cuts. I would, say watch, it, I would say watch the director's cut, but to well, each then I'm, trying to, I'm trying to get you more views, but, like, <laughs> watch both cuts. Like... <laughs> Go watch the original and then watch the directors and like see the masterpieces. I mean, the director, the, I, I'm a fan of the director's cut more because I'm in it more, but like the selfishly, you know, but like I, I, I feel like I'm the, I am the better phantom because I'm so slender man anyway that it's just, it works. But like, you're just scary looking. I'm just scary looking in general, so it just, it's just scarier, you know. Just because it's me, it's like, oh my god, it's Jacob. Because I know. Yeah, and like, but yeah, in all seriousness, go check out Lawson Filmworks. Go check out Phantom of the Fields. He needs to do better with. I'm trying to help him with the social media stuff. He needs to do better with the marketing on social media. But he made. A great short film and then he edited it basically and then reduxed it and then you know made it even better than it already was somehow so thank you check that out because it is it is like i'm i'm not even no bush like you know i know we're you know we're me and him are friends so it, it may seem like i'm coming up you know i'm biased but i'm definitely not like if you watch it from an outside perspective it's the director's cut it is like for especially for a first short film it is a great statement and i think i don't know about me we'll see about me you know i'm questionable but i have have faith he'll make a great film but when it comes to lawson definitely going to be seeing his name in actual like feature films definitely like i don't i don't see how not i really I, I really don't just working with you on set and just being your friend and being close to you i know like how good you are and like how much work you put into it and how much passion you put into it and like even i mean you there's just you're gonna you're gonna make great films like it's it's undeniable like i've like just a talent it's undeniable and like we'll see how the Jacob R. Smith? I can I can tell you it's gonna you're gonna make great films because you're passionate about cinema, and that's the main thing. A lot of there's I think the key to success in this business is talent, luck, hard work, and um, connections. You've got the connections. You've got the talent. And you put in the hard work and you kind of make your own luck. There's a lot of people out there making money, a lot of money with films now that have no talent. 
if you I have mean, talent, it puts you really above the competition. I mean, just look at like I'll say it. Like, look at some of the newer films today. There's, there's there's a lack of that, and I feel like I I just I we're definitely going to be. This is coming. This is come to the Lawson and Jacobs. Let's have a kumbaya <laughs> hat on the back show. But like, yeah, it's ended off. Look out for the two films that we're working on coming out for Jacob's film perspectives. Jacob, I'm Jacob, obviously. I mean, I have a podcast dedicated to film, so I'm obviously passionate about film. But uh, look forward to Lawson's film. Go watch Fam in the Fields, director's cut. Uh, I, I say watch both just to get them more views. But if you're gonna watch one, watch the director's cut because that's when he, that's it, more his vision that he likes. But uh, watch both. But anyway, yeah, I mean that's that's about it. Well, if we're gonna end, I'd, I got a little uh, quote here from his wife after he died. I think it sums it up pretty good. That he had a big, wonderful life. There was no dream left unfulfilled. I think, how many people can say that? I mean, that's well said. I mean, that's he, William Freakin, man, just a legend. Rest in peace. And uh, I don't know when I'll come back with episode six. I don't know when episode six will be back. But, uh, I will probably be talking about the new Exorcist movie at some point. Look out for that. Uh, but really, just go watch William Friedkin. All right, bye, y'all. All right, rest in peace and long live William.